Last Sunday morning in the first half, we studied a very exciting passage of Scripture when God calls Abraham to leave his country, his wider family, all that he was familiar with, and all that was known to him, and he calls him to a country he'd never been to before. And more than that, in fact, Abraham encounters God for the first time. And it was a spectacular experience for Abraham. As we come to the second half of chapter 12, we read these words. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to, came to Egypt... The Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Abraham, as most of you know, is a spectacular individual, a man of monumental faith. He was, as we saw last Sunday morning, called by God in a spectacular fashion. He obeys the call of God, and he begins to enter into a relationship with God in a manner that I suspect even Abraham could not foresee. And the first half of chapter 12 is a narrative of unquestioning obedience and uninhibited faith. So much so that on 72 occasions, Abraham is mentioned throughout the New Testament. He's featured in the New Testament book of Romans and in Galatians. And in James chapter 2, James, the brother of Jesus, describes Abraham as a friend of God. He was, for all intents and purposes, a spectacular individual. But if you only had the second half of Genesis 12 to study the life of Abraham, you would not recognize Abraham as an exceptional individual. A man of monumental faith. Someone who is described as the friend of God. That's not the impression you get from the second half of Genesis chapter 12. In fact, it is a deeply, profoundly challenging passage. And Abraham does not come out of it too well. 
Abraham is about to experience for the first time a significant test and trial in his faith. For the last six to eight months, he has been energized. He has been renewed. He has discovered the hand of God upon his life and even down into the deepest recesses of his heart and soul and mind. And Abraham, and you will see it in the bottom of your sermon study notes, in fact, there's a little map there that shows you that he comes out of Ar of the Chaldees. He heads north to Mesopotamia. He comes over what's called the other side of the Fertile Crescent. He then heads back down through Syria into ancient Israel, and he's on his way to Egypt. That's 1,800 miles. And over the last six or eight months, Abraham has been walking with the Lord. Things have been going well. It has been a period of excitement. But when the famine arrives, and the scriptures tell us it was severe, Abraham, the man of faith, is nowhere to be seen. Things change, and change fairly drastically. Here was Abraham who had built several altars to the worship and adoration of God at the end of our passage last Sunday. And as the famine arrives and Abraham understands the significance of the famine, what does he do? He decides he should head for Egypt. I imagine him saying to Sarai and Lot and the retinue that follows him, something along these lines. Well, here we are in the midst of a famine. I've heard from passing merchants and others we've bumped into on our journey that Egypt has plenty of food, plenty of grain. Let's go to Egypt where we will be able to survive. And off they go. But on the way there, his faith turns to fear. And Abraham, the man of monumental faith, is nowhere to be found. And in fact, on his way to Egypt, he chats with his wife Sarai and says, let's pretend you are my sister. Because when Pharaoh sees you, he is going to want you as one of his wives and they will take you and kill me. So let's just pretend. And there is no trusting in the providence and sovereignty of God at this stage. It's almost as if Abraham is saying, it's okay, I've got it. I'm now in my eighth decade. I understand people. I know some principles of leadership. I'm a successful individual. I know how this can be managed. And he plots and schemes and connives to get what he wants. And it does not end well. And so here is my first question. There are several principles to be learned when a time of crisis and trial comes our way. God does not mercifully bring trials and testing into our lives every day or in every circumstance. But from time to time, he does. And he is almost as if he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, over the last six to eight months, you've walked with me. I've appeared to you. You and I have been in an intimate relationship. And now, Abraham, you're going to be tested. 
Not that I don't know what's coming. I know exactly what's coming. I know how you'll respond. But here's the point. Abraham, I want you to know how to respond when difficult and dark days come. And our first lesson is this, that whenever dark and difficult days come and trials come our way, the first question we ask ourselves is this, is God sufficient for the circumstances of my life? Now, of course, we know the answer is yes. And of course, on a Sunday morning, we're going to say yes. And of course, we're going to put our hand in our heart and think it would be ridiculous to suggest otherwise. But Monday morning is not Sunday morning. And Tuesday morning is not Sunday morning. And Wednesday morning is not Sunday. In other words, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live it out amidst fear and difficulty and intrepidation and famine. It's one thing to talk a good game. It's another thing entirely that the walk should equal the talk. And that's what's going on here with Abraham. Is God sufficient? Abraham would have told you absolutely. He called me. I've met with him. We've interacted together. He's a good and gracious and wonderful God. But does Abraham do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally? No. He goes back to the man he once was six or eight months ago. And he does all the plotting and the scheming. He makes all of the decisions. He makes all of the choices. After all, he is a self-made man. And it's almost as if God steps back and says, Abraham, off you go. And he does. So in the midst of all that is taking place, unquestioning obedience, uninhibited faith, no longer. It is replaced by fear, duplicity, scheming, plotting, denial. And here is Abraham right in the middle of it all. Integrity, character, Honesty, truth, was left outside of Egypt. And Abraham was dependent on his own narrative, his own choices, his own sufficiency, no longer in God. And here's the second principle you need to learn. I don't think for a moment that Abraham woke up the morning, he interacted with Sarah and said, pretend to be my sister. I don't think he woke up that morning and said, I'm about to make a series of decisions that will jeopardize not only me, but my family, and it will end in disaster. I don't think that went through his mind. I don't think he decided that he would ignore God or turn away from him. I think what happened to Abraham happens to many of us. And it's happened to every generation since then who have sought to put God front and center. And it's this. Often when we're in the midst of a trial 
and fear overwhelms and faith no longer dominates and we do not do the spiritual things naturally and the natural things spiritually, we are struck with spiritual amnesia and we forget his love and we forget his call in her life. And we forget that for years she's been leading and guiding and directing and protecting us because we get so caught up with the trial that we focus on the challenges and not on his grace. That's what was going on with Abraham. And I think most of us can identify with that because there have been times in our own lives, not that we have refused God or disobeyed him, but simply we have not included him. And for Abraham, it does end in disaster. And in fact, much more than that, Abraham is deeply tested. And God is doing what? Each time he brings a test into any of our lives, he is refining us. He is shaping us. He is fashioning our hearts and our souls and our minds. He's driving us to our knees where we find deeper and fuller and richer intimacy with him. But if we ignore him, he'll let us go on with our own choices and our self-sufficiency till, of course, we accelerate into a brick wall and it's a disaster. And so, what have we discovered Abraham is living in fear instead of faith. And how could it happen? Well, as we have said, he simply did not involve God in his day-to-day living. And here is the amazing thing. And I hesitate to say this, but the passage is pretty clear that Abraham was willing to compromise his wife's purity for the sake of his own security. How could that possibly happen? In that day, it is reasonable to say the ancient Near East had a culture different from us today. Abraham and Sarah had the same dad but different moms. And technically, they were brothers and sisters. You could argue that. It's not much of an argument, but you could argue it. Secondly, when a lady was taken into Pharaoh's court to be his wife, she was secluded from everyone else for nine months to a year till the marriage arrangements were put in place. Thirdly, Abraham pretending to be her brother, would be her guardian. And Pharaoh would have to come and seek his permission in order for Sarai to become his wife. But she was there in the Pharaoh's palace. And Abraham had put her in danger. And isn't that typical of sin? It promises so much and delivers so little. And here was Abraham 
feeling that he was entirely in control. He had it all worked out. He knew what was best. He would determine how things would go. And once he had everything in place, yes, they would probably take, along with livestock, food and water and head back to Israel. But it did not turn out that way. And mercifully, it didn't. And we see right in the passage three of the most precious words in all of Scripture. Verse 17, but the Lord. As you read through the book of Romans and Galatians and other New Testament books, you come across that word, but God. And it's always, always a period when God intervenes, and we see it right here. But the Lord seriously inflicted Pharaoh and his household. And what is the next step in developing narrative? It is that Pharaoh calls Abraham in and he says to him, Abraham, what on earth were you thinking why didn't you tell us she was your sister? Why did you live with all of this pretense and duplicity? Abraham, I thought you were a man of character, integrity, honesty, transparency. I thought you were a man of God. And here is Pharaoh over here in Egypt lecturing a man who would be known as the friend of God. A man who was a monumental man in terms of his faith. But on this occasion he got it wrong and got it wrong so badly. And it reminds us of that third biblical principle that every saint is capable of every sin. Every saint is capable of sin. And here we see it in Abraham. And no longer do we see the self-made man. No longer do we see the man who was reliant on himself. No longer do we see the man who was self-sufficient. But Abraham leaves Egypt along with his livestock. And of course his wife Sarai, thankfully, his nephew Lot. And he heads back to where God had originally called him. And please understand this. We find it in, verse, in the next chapter, in fact. Look at the first few verses of chapter 13. And we haven't read this passage. And what do we discover is this. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold, and from the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. Then 
after he'd messed up, after he'd messed up so badly, not before. And it's almost as if God is taking him back step by step by step. Abraham, do you remember when I called you? Abraham, do you remember what I said to you? That I will be your God and you will be my people and I will love you with an everlasting love. And Abraham's only response was to do what? We saw it several times last Sunday was to build an altar, a place of adoration, a place of worship, a place that reminded him of the majesty and grandeur, grandeur and wonder of God. But please remember an altar is also a place of sacrifice and obedience. And if we have seen Abraham getting it wrong, If we've learned a number of principles, please also hear this. That the story ends with God's restoring grace. When Abraham comes back to him and calls on him, it's almost as if the Lord wraps him in his arms of love and grace again and says, Abraham, you have come home. Now, if you were God... Is that how you would have responded to Abraham? I have to tell you, I would find that hard. I'd want to say to him, Abraham, you have ignored me for the last six months, and I tried everything to get your attention. The salvation of all of humanity depends on our relationship, and you messed it up so bad, Abraham, you are on the bench. Sit over there, sit quietly till I tell you different. That's probably what I would have done. But God doesn't. And thankfully, he never does. And he doesn't because he loves us with an everlasting love. And not only does he give us a first chance and a second chance, but let me tell you from personal experience, he gives you a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance and a sixth chance and a seventh chance. And it goes on and on and on and on. And in the midst of it all, he's refining us and fashioning us in order that we might be more Christ-like, in order that we get it into our DNA that when trials and difficulties come our way, he often uses them in order that we do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. And the story ends in a spectacular fashion as Abraham calls out to God and says, restore me, renew me, allow me to be refreshed by you, Give me a glimpse of you again. And so the passage ends in hope. So how do we wrap things up this morning? What are the lessons we take away? Number one, whatever your circumstance, he still loves you and is still sufficient for your every need. It's not that he was simply sufficient for Abraham. He is sufficient for your every need. Every need. Remember when Jesus went into the desert 
For 40 days he was tempted and tried. And what do you think he was doing for 40 days? Was he just standing there in 90 degree heat, walking back and forward, thinking, okay, it's day 37, only three more to go, and I think things will be fine. No. Was he trying to find some shelter? Probably to get out of the sun. But I'm fairly convinced what Jesus was doing was this. He spent those hours with those he knew best and the people he loved the most. Throughout the scriptures, especially the gospels, we find Jesus doing what? Quoting Genesis and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the Psalms and Isaiah. And again and again and again and again, he was immersing himself in scripture in order to be prepared for the next three years of public ministry. God was preparing him amidst the trial and the temptation. And God was sufficient. Secondly, in the midst of those trials, he often drives us to our knees. But please hear me. He should not have to. We should never be reliant on our own resources and our own plotting and our own scheming and our own manufacturing of a situation and manipulating it to our own end. Never. It should be for him first. And thirdly, regardless of your sin, regardless of how fickle our thinking, regardless how dense our heart and soul is, regardless if our faith turns to fear, he will be there for you and with you. He's not going to bench you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to run from you. But he's going to wrap you in his arms of love and grace and hold you close and whisper to your soul, Lo, it is I and I've got you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. And thank you that within its pages we find again that you are indeed a loving, gracious Father. Father, help us, please, whatever we are facing, to abandon any sense of self-importance and self-sufficiency and help us to immerse ourselves in your will and to trust you for all that is to come. Father, bless us this day, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.